I get Biblical Archaeology Review monthly. You get fun articles, see what's going on around the world, things from the past. It's interesting that uh, in the 1800s, there really was no science of archaeology as we think of it today. And when Europe was rediscovering the ancient empires like Egypt, um, <clears throat> you can read stories of these guys who they're finding the tombs of the kings, you know, and of course they've been ransacked for years in the pyramids, but they're still going, hoping that they're going to find treasure. And so they'd go to these dig sites, and there were mummies everywhere. You know, when we think of mummies today, we think of, uh, I don't know, maybe scary movies, but humans, you know, human mummies in sarcophagi and all that stuff. Well, they'd find mummies of everything, and the Egyptians mummified everything, cats, dogs, you know, pets, birds, you name it. So in the 1800s, when these guys would go to these digs and these pyramids, mummies were so abundant that they would burn them at night as firewood to stay warm by. Now, if you know, today, I don't know if you guys saw in the paper, just a week or so ago, a guy was arrested because he was smuggling what? Mummies out of Egypt. Because today they're considered valuable. They're priceless. You know, they're, they are this direct hands-on tie to one of the world's greatest civilizations, you know, tying back thousands of years. But they were being used by firewood, as firewood, by these early guys. And there's a legend, and I can't actually verify this for sure, but that Napoleon invaded Egypt, if you remember this, in the 1800s. And uh, it's said that his cannoneers used the Great Sphinx for their target practice to improve the use of their cannons. You know, today, the Sphinx... It's the largest monolithic statue in the world, and it's the oldest. And just to put this in perspective, the Sphinx was there before Abraham was walking the earth, back in Genesis 12. I mean, that's how old this thing is. And these guys come up with their pea shooters and are shooting at the nose of the Sphinx. You know, now, perspective's kind of the deal here, isn't it? Today you know, good luck getting near to do anything, you know, damaging to the Sphinx. In their day, the mummies or the Sphinx, they had no inherent value. They were seen as common or lowly. They, no value at all. Whereas our perspective today is, man, these things are so valuable, they're priceless. They're irreplaceable. You can't make any more of these. You can't get any more of these. They're priceless. And though this is an incredibly crude comparison, uh, the... I say all this to say that I'm convinced in our day and our time, not related to mummies or statues, but that in our culture and in our day, the area of sex has become so trivialized, so um, overblown, uh, as to be rendered so common and vulgar in the old sense of the term, common, that we've lost its value. And it's priceless value, actually. And the scripture text we're in this morning is in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. What God meant as a priceless gift is so thoroughly abused in our culture today that its value appears to be missing entirely. And this is a huge issue. It's, it's hard to overstate this as an issue. Um, I'm convinced, and I've been totally challenged as I've read this passage, that Christians are called today to redeem sex and sexuality as the priceless gift God always meant it.
to be. And in our culture, it's the mummies we're burning, whereas we're supposed to have the perspective that this is an incredibly valuable, indeed priceless gift from God. So if you remember last time, we looked in the end of chapter 3 and sort of the middle of chapter 4, and we said of Paul, he he prayed for them, he talked to them about love, and he said, I want you to abound in love. Well, in the passage we're in this morning, he takes that same thought about this abounding or excelling, but he applies it to the area of holiness related to sex. That's where we're at this morning. We'll start at verse 1. Paul continues and says, Finally then, brothers, we, we request... And exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk, and that just means to live your life, to conduct yourself, and please God just as you actually do, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Related to love last week, Paul says you are being loving, but I want you to excel still more. And we talked about the Greek term there, um, abound, overflow. It was something that was overflowing from a little to a lot. When Paul says here that you're, you're, um, you're walking away that pleases God on one hand in verse 1, he says, but I want you to excel still more. And it's the same Greek term. So when we think of Christians abounding in love, if you're a Christian, you think, I know I'm supposed to love others. It's kind of a given. And and then you hear Paul say, you should overflow in love. You should abound in love. This doesn't sound like too much of a stretch. But Paul's taken that same thought about this excelling, abounding, overflowing quality related to something, and then he's attaching it to holiness in sex. And this this is not a normal uh, tie-in. Uh, for you guys, if you say, uh, uh, I'm not very loving, and you feel like, yeah, I should be more loving. Or you might meet other Christians, and they would say, yeah, we should be more loving. Our goal is to be a loving Christian. How many Christians do you know who say, I want to be a holy Christian? Or my goal is to be more holy. It's to abound. It's to excel. It's to overflow in holiness. Uh, probably not probably not a goal for most of us, probably not something that we think about or think about in those ways, but that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Excel or abound in holiness and specifically by keeping holy in the area of sex. So, Paul says, God wants you to be holy. And he says that three times in this passage. You know, one of the difficulty with some of the terms that you'll read in the Bible is that they sound religious and so therefore they sound uh, I don't know. Um, they don't make sense. Or they don't maybe communicate to us today what they should. Paul uses the term for holy three times here. He says in verse 3, uh, God's will is your sanctification. In verse 4, know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification. Verse 7, God hasn't called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. 
the Greek term in all of these is, is uh, hagiosmos, hagiosmo, hagiosmo. If you read the New Testament and you read about where uh, um, Christians are called saints, it's the hagios ones, it's the holy ones. So uh, I, I don't like the term sanctification primarily because I don't think it, it communicates well. And sometimes holiness is a term for us doesn't either. But uh, it says you're to be holy, you're to be holy, you're to be holy. And so when Christians are addressed in the epistles, you are the holy ones. The question then becomes, of course, well, what does it mean to be holy? What, what does holiness look like? If I'm sanctified, what does that mean? What does that look like? And these terms, I think this is an indication to you about where we're at as a culture. Um, if holiness doesn't make any sense to us, it's like, why is that? This is a common theme in the scriptures. The saints throughout the generations knew it. But if you bring up the term holiness today, you're like scratching your head. What exactly does that mean? Or it sounds odd or weird. That's an indication of how far down the road we've gone in the wrong direction. So maybe some clarity related to this. If you read people's definitions of holiness, you can read kind of from a number of different vantage points. Things like uh, to be holy is to be unique. To be holy is to be different. To be holy is to be set apart. Um, set apart, maybe in my mind, is most helpful. Um, I like to think of it this way. God says He's holy. And for me, that means this. God is everything He should be and nothing that He shouldn't be. God is everything He should be, nothing that He shouldn't be. God is absolutely set apart. He's sinless. And that's not true of, of any of us. He's sinless. He's special, he's creator, he's different and unique in all kinds of ways. But kind of at the end of the day, he's everything he should be, nothing that he shouldn't be. So that for us to be holy is to be set apart from everything less than who and what God has called us to be. To be holy for us is to be set apart from anything less than who God wants me to be and what He wants me to be or what He wants me to do. Just to get a handle on what does that mean. It doesn't mean you're religious, the way the world uses that term. There's no negative connotation in this biblically. Okay, it's all positive. For you and I to be holy just means that we're fully what God wants us to be and nothing that He doesn't want us to be. So when Paul says He wants us to abound in holiness... He's simply saying we should be everything God wants us to be on one hand, nothing that He doesn't want us to be on the other. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 say, uh, Just as He who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do, for it's written, Be holy, because I am holy. And the area that Paul's specifically addressing here is in the area of sex. What does that mean? Verse 3, this says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And depending on your translation, your words might be a little different there. The Greek term for immorality here is porneia. It's used 24 times in the New Testament. And it's translated variously, marital unfaithfulness, sexual immorality, illegitimate, and adulteries. And sometimes when you read your Bible, it will say fornication, and that's not actually, the term is porneia. Or, or it will say adultery, and the term is actually porneia. And just, this is the point. This doesn't mean just sex in the way we think of intercourse or something like that. Porneia means, as a definition, a generic term for sexual sin of any kind. 
So when Paul says sexual immorality, he's saying God's called us away from sexual sin of any kind. Not just of one kind, not of, just of sleeping with each other, but of any kind. It's broad. My point here is that it's broad. If it's sexual and it's not the kind of sex God wants, that's what he's talking about. Abstain from every form of immorality. Now, um, you know every generation thinks they've invented sex. You know that we figured something out that our parents didn't know. And then I'm thinking, well, if they didn't know it, how'd we get here? You know, but every generation thinks they figured something. Sex is new. And we figured out we're naughtier than the people before us. We know more in this arena than others before us. But, you know, um, I think we're, we're, we're bad. I mean, we're, we're bad. But um, I'm not sure we have anything on the ancient world. So the group that Paul's writing to, these new Christians in Thessalonica... Their culture would have been actually quite a bit like our own. That sexual promiscuity, it was very, very common. And even though they married, it was very common for guys in marriage to have mistresses. Um, This was common. Um, uh, Immorality just in general was common. Prostitution was common. They also had something else, though, that was a little different from us today in that most pagan sexual religions also had were very intimately tied in with sexual immorality. That is... Immorality was a part of most pagan religious services. So if a young guy told his parents he was going to church, going to temple, this could take on an entirely different meaning. Because for them, sex was a part of their religious services as well. So the group that Paul's writing to, immorality, kind of like our culture today, it was rife. It was everywhere. It was part of daily life. It was kind of a given. And this is totally at odds with what God's called them to. So Paul's got to arrest this notion of of where they're at, how they got there, because their culture, that's normal. Sexual immorality is normal. Now, when Paul says uh, abstain from sexual immorality, he, he means no sexual activity that lacks God's approval. No sexual activity that lacks God's approval. That would mean to be holy. So think about this. That would mean things like no sex before marriage. It means no sex outside of marriage. It means also things like nothing that stimulates you sexually apart from your spouse. I don't think I'll be graphic this morning, but the Bible speaks frankly about this and so will I. Uh, It means things like no TV, movies, music, magazines that tempt you to sexual thoughts or desires outside of God's will as well. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5.28 that if we lust in our hearts, we've already committed the sin. We haven't physically committed the sin of adultery, for instance. But his point is sin proceeds from the heart. So that if I'm a hateful person, but I don't actually kill someone else, Jesus still says, you don't get it. Just not killing someone else, that's okay but you've still got the seed of murder because you're entertaining it in your heart. Well, that's the thought here too. So we're called, Paul says, to this holiness in sex. He says is nothing that's sexually immoral. Actions, attitudes, words, thoughts, it's everything. It's everything. Um, In Ephesians 5, 3, Paul takes up a similar theme there. And he says this, among you, and he's speaking to Christians in Ephesus, just like he would be to you or I today. He says, among you, Christians, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity 
or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. We talked about love last time. What's the minimum? What do I have to aim for, God? What's enough to say I'm good to go? If you've asked that same question here, what's the minimum level of holiness for God? Paul says here, not even a hint of immorality. You know, this sounds, I don't know if this strikes you this way. In our culture and in our time, this sounds like an impossibility, doesn't it? God's bar is way up here. And if we come in saying, what's the minimum, Lord, just so that I know I'm okay? And Paul says in Ephesians, not even a hint of immorality. I'm like, you're serious. We can do this. Uh, Not only we, you know, sinful me, I can do this. Or sinful me in this sinful generation, we can do this. This is radical stuff. If you think being a Christian is mundane, ho-hum, it's not. It It is revolutionary. It's radical, the call Christ brings on anyone's life. So, uh... People often ask, what's okay to do physically? What's okay to do if I'm not married? What's okay to do with someone else that's not my spouse? And there's shade, there's, I'm not nuancing everything, okay? So, but this is kind of my bottom line. If you're not married, don't act like you're married. If you're not married, don't act like you're married. This is pretty simple. Um, if you're not married and you're looking at some other Christian guy or gal... You're looking at your sister or your brother. Okay? When Paul wrote Timothy, who's a young guy, serving in a church in Ephesus, he said this about the way Timothy interacted with other Christians in the church. He said this, Don't sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. Appeal to the younger men as brothers. To the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Uh, Timothy, behave towards gals, members of the opposite sex, in all purity, like they're your sister. Now, related to physical, um, I have no doubt that all of us, if you're a parent, you hug your children, don't you? Or you hug your siblings. You might kiss your children or your siblings, right? But how often does someone mistake your physical contact with your family members for sex does that ever has that ever happened to you probably not why is that because it doesn't look like sex does it in other words paul's not saying you can't have a physical relationship with other people but he's saying it should be the familial kind it should express affection and acceptance and comfort but that's all it should communicate it shouldn't communicate anything beyond that So if you're not married and you're with someone and your physical interaction makes someone think you're married, you're probably too far in what you're doing physically. And I'm looking at couples in here who are engaged to be married. And this is why I'm not going to nuance everything. People hold hands. They put their arm around each other. But the thought again is, are you starting something that is sexual in nature? That's the deal. Is that where you're going or is that what it tends to? And if it is, Paul says, don't do it. They're your brother or they're your sister in Christ or they're your mother or your father in Christ. So that's familial affection, but it shouldn't be more than that. At verse 4, Paul says, Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. I'm reading from the New American Standard here, by the way. Yours might read a little differently. 
Um, vessel, we're not entirely sure what this word means. It means a pot or a jar or a container. We know that. But as far as use here, it's unclear. Paul could mean, he could be saying this, each of you should know how to possess his own wife in sanctification and honor. Or he might be saying, each of you should know how to to, um, possess his own body in sanctification and honor. If Paul's saying here that the vessel is your wife, as he does in 1 Peter, he uses this term for a wife, then he's saying something like he did in 1 Corinthians 7. He's saying, hey, get married, uh, don't burn with passion or lust, get married, and have a God-honoring sexual relationship with your spouse, not in lustful passion, he says, but with your spouse. That would be a husband and his wife. If he means your body, then he's saying to exercise self-control over your own body so that you avoid sexual sin. In either way, he's saying avoid sexual sin. Either with your wife in a way that's approved by God and has His blessing, or simply showing self-control when you're not married. Now, in either case, he says, um, possess your own vessel in holiness and honor so that you will refrain from transgressing or defrauding someone else. What does that mean? It's at least two things, or at least two possibilities here. If I have sex with someone else's wife, they're not mine. They belong to someone else. And I have defrauded their spouse in adultery. I have taken what belongs to someone else for myself. I've defrauded them. I've taken what is theirs and I've made it mine. That's one thing. Here's another thing, though. In fact, for singles, this is huge to me. Another way you can defraud someone else, let's say that you're dating someone and you think you might get married. Let's say even that. Let's, let's say you're engaged even. And you have sex before you're married. And let's say for whatever reason the marriage is called off. You go your own separate ways and you marry somebody else in the future. You defrauded that person's future spouse because you took what didn't belong to you. Their virginity belonged to their spouse. It didn't belong to you. So you could defraud someone else. You say, hey, we're two single people. It's okay. We're not married. No, it's not okay. Number one, they belong to Christ and they're supposed to remain pure if they're a Christian. Number two, if they're not a Christian, you shouldn't be having any kind of intimate relationship with them in in the first place. And number three, if either of you marry someone else in the future... You took from that person or gave to someone else what only belonged to that future spouse. So Paul says immorality breeds transgression and defrauding, taking what belongs to someone else. And in fact, this is in rather strange, uh, strong language. Um, he says God's the avenger in all this. This is interesting. Um, think of it this way. Uh, I have sex with somebody I'm not married to, and or maybe many people I'm not married to, and I and I tootle down the road and I kind of feel like I got away with it. It's okay, I didn't get caught, or whatever. I didn't get caught. I'm I'm good to go. And Paul says, "Well, no, you're not, because even if someone else doesn't catch you in this defrauding, Paul says God's the avenger. God still knows. He knows what's going on." And he's the one who's looking over your shoulder and is going to take care of things at the end of the day. So that 
this thing about defrauding and taking something that belongs to someone else, even if you feel like you get away with it, Paul says, no, you don't, because God's the one who's going to exact a score on this, whatever someone else does or doesn't do. This is very serious language here, this transgression, defrauding, and God being the avenger. This is somebody you can't shake, can't get away from. God's intention through both Old and New Testament, through all the scriptures is clear. Sex between one man and one woman in marriage. And that's God's idea of holy sex. Holy sex. So, for us to abound in holiness, we have to embrace this very narrow understanding of sex. Now, when I say narrow, don't hear narrow-minded. Okay? Narrow is not the same as what Christians are accused of being narrow-minded. Not the same things at all. God gives love. And the world offers, and we have within ourselves, lust. And the world and we tend to confuse these two things. God wants to give us something good, love. And the world and our own carnal natures want something that's not high and lofty, lust. And so when we're saying no sexual immorality, we're not being narrow-minded. We're being holy in the appropriate way, saying we want to value the priceless gift God's given the way He values it. We're not saying we're, um, um, we're less than physical, we're less than affectionate. Um, in fact, um, Christians should not be seen by the world as far as what we're communicating, not that this can't be misinterpreted. But we should not be seen as narrow-minded in the area of sex, except to the degree that we're saying we're being holy to God. Here's just a short list I came up with. You'd have your own, I'm sure, too. But the culture tells us that sex is so fun that we should have it as often as possible with as many people as possible. It's so fun. God says sex is so holy and so powerful that we should have it with only one other person. The world's view of sex is so broad that it's shallow. It loses its value and its meaning because it's so broad. God's design for sex is to be so narrow that it's deep, that it's significant. The world acts as if sex is our own invention, that it takes a lustful attitude to appreciate. God says... Surprise, he invented sex. And that it takes a loving and holy commitment to fully appreciate his good gift. The world views hooking up as a first date option, which totally minimizes the value of sex and the other person, and sex becomes something inherently cheap. You know, you measure the worth of something by its scarcity. If sex is everywhere, it's lost its value. God sees sex as the last and best part of a loving and committed relationship which places ultimate value on another person and sex becomes priceless again, the way God meant it to be. The world's view of sex says you're a loser, capital L, if you are not sexually active. God says you've already lost and you're not getting life but death in unholy sex. And let me ask you this. How cool is it to get STDs? The gift that keeps on giving, right? We give the gift to our friends and they give it to their friends, right? Uh, 
syphilis, gonorrhea, herpes. You know, these words to me, they're even ugly words. Gonorrhea especially. So how cool is it really to be sexually active? Giving the gift that keeps on giving. Receiving the gift that you don't want. How cool is that? Is that something you want to brag about? I'm sexually active. I have three venereal diseases. But that's what the world says is cool. If we share the world's view of sex, we cannot be holy. You can't be holy if you view sex the way the world views sex. Can't happen. It's not God's view. It's not His intention. God calls us to something higher, better, something ultimately good and something ultimately holy. So, let me challenge you with a few thoughts. And as I said before, this term radical, we use it in a lot of ways, but radical is the best term I could think of. If we're talking about being holy in the area of sex, radical is really the best word I can think of about the kind of attitude or mindset it requires on the part of a Christian in the culture we live in today to be holy. If you're not radical in your thinking and in your mind in this area, you won't be holy because it requires a constant effort in the world in which we live. Choose to see holiness as a treasure worth having and not a disease to be ashamed of. I think Christians are normally ashamed of purity. And it's because we bought into what the world's selling. Choose to see holiness as a treasure worth having and not a disease to be ashamed of. That'd be a good start. Choose to believe that God values you so highly that He protects you by confining the incredible power of sex in a committed, lifelong relationship where it blesses and builds up instead of tearing you down. People will tell you, if they've slept around a lot, they'll tell you, long term, it's not encouraging, it's debilitating. Because you have a physical relationship for a moment that implies something emotionally and spiritually that doesn't exist, and you go from one person to another person, you become less and less of a person, not more and more. You lose little bits of your soul along the way because sex is meant to be one, one man and one woman. And in that arena, it builds people up. But outside of that, it actually tears down. It takes away. Uh, speaking metaphorically, choose to spit in the world's eye. Stand up and spit in the world's eye. Related to this Pied Piper song that everybody's doing it, this is cool, this is the way it should go, and marching out of town over the cliff. In your own, this requires radical rethinking on our part. Spit in the world's eye and refuse the world's version of sex and attitude towards sex. Choose to stand up to be the unique, holy person in Christ God's called you to be. This requires a conscious decision of your will and mind. And young ladies specifically, you're worth being pursued by a godly guy. If you're not married and you're thinking about this in the future, you're worth being pursued by a godly guy. And you are worth waiting for. And you are worth being prized by one committed man the rest of your life. You're worth that. In God's eyes, you're worth that. So don't cheapen yourself. And don't lower yourself. Hold out for the best. Hold out for what God wants for you. And young guys, if you're not married, and this is something you're thinking about, your leadership, the leadership God's given you as a man, 
your integrity, your heritage are too valuable to throw away to anyone you happen to meet. God's called you to live on holy heights, not to wallow in the streets like animals. Be willing to stand up and be a man in God's and in Christ's measure rather than the world's. If you're ashamed as an adult to tell the world that you're a virgin, if you are, it tells me that you've already bought into the world's view of sex or that you fear the approval of others instead of God's. And in either case, you need to reorient your thinking. To be an adult, unmarried, and be a virgin, this is what God calls holy. This is called appropriate. This is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. And to fear the approval of others, people like you and me, guys, we're breasts, we're on the, the earth for a moment, we're gone. Jesus says, fear one person, one person only, fear God. He's the one to fear, not each other. We've talked about this recently. Don't, don't be afraid of what other people think. If you're ashamed as an adult to be a virgin or not to be sexually active, your mind's in the wrong place, you've already lost. You've got to reorient your thinking. Anytime you talk about sin and something as prevalent as this, guys, uh, probably 90% of the people in this room are guilty of sexual sin. I'm just throwing a number out. I don't know. I just assume in thought, word, or deed, probably every one of us here, if we're old enough to think and be cogent and think about sex, we're probably already guilty of sexual sin. And so the good news is God forgives this area of sin just like He does any other area. Christ died on the cross for sexual sins just as he did any other kind of sin. But put the past behind. If you've sinned in the past, if you're sinning in this area now, go to God, confess your sin, tell it like it is. That's all confession means. Lord, you've said don't do this, that's what I've been doing. Or you've said, Lord, do this, and I'm not doing that. And I understand I'm not doing right by you. I'm not holy. I'm less than who and what you've called me to be. And I confess that to you. I accept that forgiveness you've offered me in Christ again. And then, guys, part of this radical call is you've got to arm yourself with both a mindset and with habits and practices in your life that will help you stay holy. And this is practical stuff. If you are not forearmed in this arena, you will fail. In thought, word, or deed, you will fail if you don't come in ready for the battle. So I'm thinking of things like this. For the Thessalonians, it meant you don't go to the temple anymore, you know. If that's where sexual immorality was common for you, you don't go there anymore. For us, that might, might mean we're not hitting the bars anymore. might mean we don't call certain kind of phone numbers. It might mean uh, ladies were putting away things as otherwise innocuous as romance novels. Um, it means uh, trusting God. This is uh, trusting God for myself and my future. Trusting God for a spouse. Trusting God that if He doesn't give me a spouse, it's because a life of singleness is better for me. Trusting God, exercising faith in this area. Uh, practical end, um, using online filters on the Internet. The Internet, and you know this is what's true of things in general, what has power for good has power for evil. And the Internet is a great tool. It's a great device. It's a great uh, mechanism by which we get all kinds of good things. But it's also a huge, huge pitfall in the area of immorality. So using online filters, um, putting your computers where other people are around, you know what I'm saying? Um, Another thing that's helpful is just hanging out with people that you can talk to about this. So for guys or gals, having one or two or a small group of people that you actually ask 
these hard questions of. And then you tell the truth. You know, a lot of times we try and blow each other off, ask the question, how are you doing in this area of your life? And we lie. And we say, oh, fine, no problem. You know, how much better to tell the truth so that someone knows how to pray for you and to to at least remain transparent, even if you're not victorious and holy, just say the truth so that they can say, I'll pray for you in that. How can I help you? But be in relationships with other Christians where you give account to each other, where you can talk about this and where you can tell the truth and have other people that know you and love you and pray for you. Also remember this, and I think in part this is why this portion of this passage is included. Paul says, He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. God gives His Holy Spirit to you. What does that mean about sexual sin? That means I bring the Holy Spirit with me in my sexual sin. That's the thought. If I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit's inside me, and whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm going, the Holy Spirit's with me. And Paul's reminding us, as Peter had, God's holy, and God is in you. So be holy. It says elsewhere, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How do you think the Holy Spirit... God who is holy feels, he is emotional. You know, we reflect the image of God. God's emotional and we're emotional. How do you think the Holy Spirit feels when we give ourselves to sexual immorality? He's grieved. Paul says the Holy Spirit is with you. And I think it's because we're supposed to be reminded God's with us in those dark places we think nobody else is. God's with us in those unholy liaisons that our friends or family don't know about. God knows. God's there. Also, on the positive side, um, God is no prude. And you know, I'm just thinking, I'm going back to Genesis 1. God put Adam and Eve naked together in the Garden of Eden. God is no prude. God invented sex. And we've got nothing on God in this area. God is no prude, and Christians should not be prudes or prudish. So if you're married, let me challenge you to be radically happy in holy sex in your marriage. And I'm absolutely convinced on this, and statistics bear this out. A Christian should have the best sex lives on the planet. Why? Because they get to enjoy sex the way God meant it to be. Because it's in the context of this uh, two married people committed to each other for life, seeking each other's best in Christ. That's what He meant it for. So, I'm not a huge wine connoisseur, but, you know, if you pour a a fine glass of wine, if you know what wine's about, you can smell it and you can taste it and you say, man, this is the best wine. Well, this is sort of what we're saying here. Sex, to be appreciated most fully, it's the finest refined form, if you will, of communication. You can't appreciate the way God meant it to unless it's appreciated in the confines of sex. And it should be. And Christians should be able to counsel others in this arena about what God means, the the pleasures, the heights God calls people to as married couples. Guys, read Proverbs 5. Read the Song of Solomon. You know, Solomon wrote some Proverbs. A few of them got written down, book of Proverbs. You know, he wrote hundreds or thousands of songs. And you know, only one of them is written down. And it's about sex and the beauty of love in marriage. This tells me something. Song of Songs. The best of his songs is about courtship and marriage and sex. That's what it's about. God is no prude. If 
you're a Christian, you're married, you should have a great sex life. I, I commend that to you to think about, to pray about, to work on. But you should. That's, that's where God wants it. Just as Christians, and this isn't hard for us to get our minds around, God calls us to love, and Paul said, you are loving, but now abound or overflow in love. Well, Paul brings that same thought here now to sex and to holiness in sex. He says, you're doing okay, but abound even more in holiness in this arena of your life. And so let me challenge you in this. We don't do altar calls here. We don't say close your eyes and raise your hands, but close your eyes if you want. This is one of those areas in life, if you're not firm in your resolve, if you haven't made up your mind, you're going to fail. It's going to happen. And so let me just encourage you to make a commitment between you and God right now to just say, God, I want to be holy because you're holy. And I want to be everything you mean me to be and nothing that you don't want me to be. And Lord, I want to be holy in this area of sex. Let's pray. Father, you are the most grand and glorious person, entity, creature in the universe, so much so that when we see you face to face, we will fall on our faces overwhelmed by your glory. Lord, part of that glory is your holiness. And Father, when you've called us to be holy, you've called us to be like yourself. And Lord, part of that is is glorious. You've called us to holiness and your glory. And Father, I pray that you would help us to root out the ideas in our mind that lead us to think we should be ashamed if we don't look like the world in this area. God, help us to be radical in choosing to believe that your plan, holiness in the arena of sex, is a good thing, that it's not a disease, that it shouldn't be despised, Lord, that it is precious, that it's desirable. Lord, help us to refuse to carry the yoke the world wants to put upon us. Lighten our load, Lord, by helping us commit to you to be holy. And Lord, help us to be an encouragement to each other in this as well. Just asking the questions about how we're doing. Telling the truth to each other, Lord. Praying for each other. Help us not to be casting stones, lest we all fall. But help us to pray for each other in this area as well. Lord, help us to share your holiness on one hand, Lord, and in love and in marriage, help us to excel, help us to appreciate the value of sex as you meant it to be, not prudishly, not small, Lord, but big. It reflects you. It reflects the love of the Trinity. Lord, thank you for sex. Help us to be holy in all those ways and, Lord, radical in our commitment to you. In Jesus' name, amen.